Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 83. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we are discussing Exhibit Columbus, an annual exploration of architecture, design, and community in Columbus, Indiana, featuring an alternating program of symposia and design exhibitions. This year's event kicks off today, Thursday, September 29th, with a symposium entitled Foundations and Futures, running until Saturday, October 1st, featuring keynotes by Deborah Burke, Robert Stern, Michael Van Valkenberg, and Will Miller. Joining us this week to talk about Exhibit Columbus, we have Richard McCoy and Josh Cogeshall. Richard is the director of the parent organization Landmark Columbus and the leading force behind Exhibit Columbus. Josh is a professor of architecture at Ball State University and a licensed architect and partner at Shimizu and Kagashal Architects. He is also the co-director of university installations for the exhibit next summer. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure it is to be here. It's great to have you guys on. So today's show is especially close to my heart because Columbus is just 45 minutes down the road from my hometown. And I do feel like Columbus, Indiana is something of a secret to many people, even within the architecture world. Richard, could you give us sort of a, um, a 30 second history of why Columbus, Indiana is so important within the architecture world and especially the modernist movement? Thanks, Donna. I'm going to have to speak fast to do it in 30 seconds, but I'll try. Okay, well then take 90. (laughs) The story starts for me in 1941 in a magazine article of Time, and it says, the world's most expensive church built by Europe's most famous architect is going up in Columbus, Indiana, population 11,000. This is Eliel and Eero Saarinen's Tabernacle Church of Christ, which later becomes First Christian Church, which is the first modern church in America and a real icon for architecture around the world almost instantly. And from there, you know, seemingly every decade, there's a new audacious building that goes up, but it goes up not in this kind of sculptural form that is audacious, but in what it's designed to do, what its program is. And so in the 50s, you have Aero Saarinen building Irwin Union Bank, which in a sense, revolutionizes banking. In the 60s and 70s, you have the Cummins Foundation Architecture Program building 14 schools through support of the community. And so the Cummins Foundation is building that with the community. In the 80s, Kevin Roach builds the global headquarters for Cummins Diesel Engines. In the 90s, Michael Van Valkenburg builds uh, Millrace Park. Deborah Burke builds a beautiful tiny jewel case library in Hope, Indiana, and Bob Stern builds the county hospital. And so almost every decade through the 90s, and even almost to today, you have these moments where Columbus changes the game in architecture and design. Does that help? Yes. And um, specifically, can you talk a little more about the architecture program that was put together by, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the guests at the symposium is Will Miller, and it was his father that started the architecture program. Is that correct? That's right. So Columbus, Indiana, like most American cities after the war, is going through this unprecedented growth. And at the same time, Will Miller's father, J. Irwin Miller, is at the helm of Cummins and trying to encourage people to move to Columbus and to work at Cummins. And so this is before these notions of placemaking are even put out there, right? He's trying to build a community. And he zeroes in on this idea if we can make this a great place to live for families and young people. We can build a great community and at the same time build a great corporation. So he makes this extraordinary offer to the school corporation in the county that says, if you use an architect from a list that we create, we will subsidize the project and pay the design fees. 
And as your audience knows, this is sometimes 10 to 20% of the project. And so it starts in 1957 with Harry Wiest's Lillian Schmidt Elementary. And as I said earlier, it goes over the course of 14 schools that are built with emerging and eventually nationally known architects. And so, again, as you said, as you cataloged earlier, this results in a um, a small town by any United States standards that is just filled to the brim with amazing pieces of architecture, and particularly modern architecture. So I think if I'm not wrong, this is the first, this exhibit Columbus is now the first time that we're really sort of shining a national spotlight on this city. Can you tell us more about your inspiration for Exhibit Columbus and how that came about? Well, I have this great honor and responsibility and pleasure to to lead this project. But, you know, I'm fortunate to have this really smart team of which Josh is an integral and key part of. And so the idea for Exhibit Columbus is to re-energize the community and the world about Columbus and at the same time reinvest in the value of good design, which is a leadership value of the Community Foundation. And so if I could just pause for a second to say, this is a project that's created not from an arts council, not from a corporation, not from a leading arts organization. It's created from the Community Foundation, this organization that's dedicated to continuing community ways. And so the idea is, how do we make Columbus relevant in the 21st century? How do we start talking about what we're doing today rather than what we did in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s? And so this is the key sort of part of Exhibit Columbus, is to reimagine what Columbus can be in the 21st century. And it was really Josh that came along, I think, early on was talking about, you know, my students at Ball State University are just as interested in these other cities. They're not as interested in Columbus as they were 20 and 30 years ago. What's happening in Columbus? Am I right, Josh? That's correct. You know, the the city after the post-war expansion was building all these buildings, but the uh, currently the city's sort of built out. And so how do we continue to build upon the traditions of Columbus and and not tradition by looking backwards, but by looking forward, that we understand that tradition is a living thing and we can still uh, kind of adjust that understanding of it. And so, Josh, you're working with some of your own students as well as with students from other universities. Can you talk a little bit about the second part of this um, Exhibit Columbus, not the symposium that's happening this weekend, but the, the part that's coming next year? Correct. I'm, I'm going to let Richard talk about sort of the, the, the big architects we're bringing in. But my partner and I, Janice, we are the university coordinators for Exhibit Columbus. And we are trying to build kind of a regional network of schools. So we early on reached out to a lot of the major universities in the Midwest. We are working with, uh, obviously, Ball State's going to be part of this, the Ohio State University, University of Cincinnati, University of Kentucky, and University of Michigan are all going to participate and build something for Exhibit Columbus 2017. We also have IIT and Indiana University as part of the symposium that's going to start today. So those are a lot of the schools that we have involved. And and again, we're trying to really advocate for this part of the world as a design center. Most people know Columbus as an engineering center, and we're really trying to capitalize on the sort of the built traditions of it to make Columbus, to make the Midwest known as a um, design center, something that, you know, has a unique voice and culture. Let me let me toss this question back to our regular hosts, especially people who are not in the Midwest. There's an initiative going on right now called Regional Cities. It's basically this notion that, you know, that the world is so interconnected right now that regions can be defined by the cities that are within them and that they are all connected. Is this really just a Midwest phenomenon or are you guys hearing any of this on the coast? Well, I guess being based in Los Angeles, we're in a specific 
perspective yeah. that already has this kind of mega region exactly. culture to it. And of course that you do, you are operating on a different scale, right? I, I loved Richard, that Time Magazine article you read it for, for 11,000 people. And you, you hear that as a population and just thinking about how to extrapolate building for a community on that and trying to establish a kind of design vocabulary and design image versus a city like Los Angeles or a county like Los Angeles that we're in a part of. It's of course the like apples and oranges. So Donna, I think to answer your question that yeah, there is something going on like that where there is just an embrace of more of the overall networks and the mega region kind of approach to to certain types of urbanism. But in terms of trying to establish a kind of clear image of what that region might convey in terms of design and architecture, I, I haven't necessarily seen that. Part of the thing we're trying to define is what is the Midwest? And so if you take Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky, those are the, the five states that are part of this through the university network, and try to compare it to a region in the world that's... Uh, you know, distinct and has its own culture, its own sense of place, its own architecture, design. You get to the the country of Spain is probably equal size and population. And I think we'd all agree Spain has a distinct culture and architecture and food culture. The Midwest, same population, we double the size, we double our production that the country of Spain does. And so the potential to impact design that Exhibit Columbus can impact is, is pretty powerful. We have eight cities in the Midwest that have a metropolitan area of over uh, 1 million. So that the impact of this could be pretty great if once a year we're all gathering in this small town to talk about architecture, art, design, fabrication, manufacturing. The potential of this is, is to me, the part that gets really exciting. So can I ask, and this is for both Joshua and Richard, when you were determining who to invite as keynote speakers and you reached out to Deborah Burke, Robert Stern, and so on and so forth, all of these architects you invited have a particular stead in the area, but what was it in particular about their work or their role in the area that you wanted to kind of champion as uh, through their keynote? Well, the keynote is really an amazing part of the symposium, and it's something we really wanted to try to reach as, as high and far as we can get to bring the sort of the complexity of the community together with the sort of international capacity of the designers that have worked there. And we also wanted to do that in a way that highlighted the Cummins Foundation Architecture Program's involvement in the community. And so the three projects that they worked on all were funded in part by the Cummins Foundation Architecture Program. They were all started around the same time and finished around the same time in the early 1990s. And they were all architects and designers that worked in Columbus. And we had a hypothesis that their career was impacted by their time there. And that's a bold thing to say that a small town could impact the career of Michael Van Valkenburg or Deborah Berg. But knowing Columbus at its highest and best in the early 1990s, it was a powerful place for young architects, landscape architects, and artists to get commissions. And so this is, you know, the symposium starts today and the keynote's Friday. So I don't have the answers to my hypothesis yet, <laughs> but you have to come to see it. But that's the idea is that we've set into motion something that we think is going to to prove out something. But at the same time, those those keynotes aren't, um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, boring sort of sage on a stage presentations. These are conversations. And so, for example, with Deborah Burke, who built this library in a small town, a smaller town than Columbus called Hope, which is tiny, she's going to be in conversation with the head of the library that was in place in the 1990s that helped select her 
out of the Cummins Foundation's list of five designers. And then also in conversation, the current director of the library. And the person that's going to moderate that is Will Miller, the youngest son of Irwin and Xenia Miller. And so this isn't really about a presentation. This is about a community coming together to think about design for learning, as in a library, design for healing, as in a hospital and design for leisure in the park. In each instance, we have a stakeholder was there to build it and a stakeholder there to maintain it. So I want to make sure that we get to some of the the other people that are going to be involved, because you mentioned this idea of a younger architect coming to a place and it really impacting their career. And you obviously have some younger firms, exciting ones that are coming for the second stage of this. But you, Richard, brought up this notion of that the the work is founded in the community. And there was a great article on, uh, at least I thought it was good. I'd like to get your thoughts on it. There was an article in Architect Magazine recently about Columbus's heritage and whether Columbus needs a preservation law. And Richard, you in that article sort of disputed this notion of the single great man, which which I think in architecture, we always think about, you know, the heroic architect. And I think that's a stereotype that is starting to crumble a bit and in my mind in a good way. Can you talk a little more about this, this notion of the community as the driving force behind this kind of success rather than the sort of legendary, you know, architect that swoops in in his cape? Well, yeah, that's really hard, but I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> so there's two things. One is that J. Irwin Miller was, by anyone's account, a great man. He, in 1963, helped Martin Luther King Jr. arrange the March on Washington. He used his corporation in Cummins as a powerful force for social equity. He pulled out of South Africa during apartheid. He was, you know, so there's Cummins today is a remarkable company in the state of Indiana. It's the third biggest employer in the state. And it was the first company in the state to go against the current governor's plan against LGBT rights. And so it's been a, a progressive company for a long time. And so he is a great man and his leadership there has affected the company in a big way. But at the same time, his leadership in Columbus around the value of good design has been to not make it he being the person that drives everything, but the community. And this is evidence today in that there are seven national historic landmarks in Columbus, five of which are related to Miller's either the Cummins Foundation, the school corporation, or his his bank, or his projects, but two aren't. And they had not, you know, they were not directly tied to him. So Harry Weiss's First Baptist Church is a National Historic Landmark, and that was not Miller's church. The Republic Newspaper Building, 1971, by Myron Goldsmith, is a National Historic Landmark. And in fact, Myron Goldsmith did work in Columbus, likely by the invitation of the Brown family who brought him there, not Mr. Miller. And so I think part of it is they have this extraordinary client who was a great man, but his service to be a great man was to make the community better. And at the same time, architects, artists, and landscape architects in Columbus responded to that. You know, this is trying to solve a problem. We need a library. What kind of library? We need a school. And so this was never about great architecture for the sake of architecture. This was about great design for the sake of solving a problem. Does that get there? And well, and then you also talk a little about how the community has really taken hold of this, that this is in many ways how the city of Columbus identifies itself as a community. And their way of thinking about themselves in the world is via architecture and design. Yeah, as someone who is involved with various aspects within the city and community and culture, I know that Mr. Miller's quotes happen daily in meetings. And so his his leadership is still 
visible or, or tangible in the community, but they're points of inspiration. They aren't, and this, I want to get back to your question about the Architect Magazine article. It's not a hand reaching from the grave trying to direct the present, right? It's more of an encouragement for the community to solve the problems in their own time with their own creative ideas. And I think this is a really powerful thing to say, which is that we living in community, no matter how big or small it is, we should be looking to solve today's problems with excellence. And so in Columbus, those buildings represent this pursuit of excellence. And there is no Historic Preservation Commission controlling any of them. There's no legal controls on any of the buildings. And so this is at once a daring, visionary community. I mean, in another way, a very modest place that is just trying to be as excellent as it can be. So Richard, in the past, we've had an architectural preservationist on and the way that he talked about preservation really altered my thinking about the idea where um, my sense of it was always that it was very static, very limited to kind of preserving the existing facility or structure, never thinking about it as a, as a um, kind of a living and breathing entity that kind of moves together with uh, a connection to the community and moves forward into the future. And it sounds like for, for the most part that this is reminding people of the legacy of Columbus, but connecting and, and understanding and appreciating the, the regionalism that happens within these five states and the, the disrepair and the disengagement of the manufacturing sector, and maybe I'm reading this in my own brain, but I'm trying to make sense of um, this, is trying to connect that legacy of the past and how we can move forward to kind of create a new a paradigm where the culture isn't so decimated and, and feeling like they have nothing at stake anymore and kind of building on a new, a new system whereby the design is important and we have a legacy that talks about it and we can move that to the new future. Is that, does that make any, does it have any resonance with you? Yeah, I don't I don't mean to be a, a cheapskate, but yeah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My brain was crunching away the whole time you guys were talking. I was like, ah. Ken, are you referring to the Jorge Otero Palos work? Yes. I think that's a really fascinating reference point because for, for people, we can link in the show notes to the prior episode we had with him. But for people who don't know, his preservation isn't about, okay, well, we need to, you know, take a perfect cast of this and make sure it never changes, but is about like, excavating layers of dust from ancient architecture and trying to establish different ways of preserving things in time and cultural memory, if not in the exact physical reality that it currently exists. So if you have a, a community like Columbus that is trying to establish not only its identity through, or already has this identity established through um, this architecture, it has a stead in it keeping that community together by keeping the architecture together and kind of rolling it all together into the future to exponentially grow. Yeah, I think that that's an excellent reference to think about. And that uh, the Otero Pylos podcast that we did, and we will definitely link to it. Richard, that's a beautiful sentiment, this notion that it's not about controlling things from the past, but about thinking how to go forward in the future in excellence. That's a beautiful sentiment. And that's the kind of thing I think that every architect hopes that their client will be thinking about, right? Uh, so I want to go a little bit to outcomes that you think might be coming out of this event. Um, and Josh, I wanted to ask you specifically about the didactic, because I think you helped in organizing that. And could you describe what the didactic issue three was and how it came about? I was uh, somewhat involved with that, but I, I, will, I will give it a big shot. Richard had contacted a longtime 
our connector Enrique Ramirez yep. to write some new site histories of uh, Columbus and specifically the sites that will be part of the exhibit. But we wanted them. Um, there's actually surprisingly little literature on Columbus, like um, in the kind of disciplinary terms, like the relationship of this to that, you know, that, that like, you know, who knew that Bob Venturi worked for Aero Saarinen? You know, these things are, are somewhat important. And so Enrique did a really great job kind of uh, placing these things in context, both for a layperson and for like an audience like here at Arconnect, like someone who really gets interested in the history and traditions and where it moves forward. I also want to point out that didactic is what I would call a zine. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think of it as not, you know, it's not like this fancy um, published catalog or anything. It's really a zine. And um, this particular issue is, I don't know how people could get their hands on it, but it really goes into, yeah, some of the interesting backstory behind how, again, going back to Jorge Otero Pilos, how even platting out of land becomes a, a recording of history. You know, it, it talks a lot about the railroad influence and these kind of things that that create what we would term an architectural site, which is not really a real thing until we all agree that it exists as one, as a physical entity. So it's a great little magazine, a zine, a little zine. I think um, anyone who's a fan of loud paper would enjoy it especially. But are there other publications potentially coming out of this project? Just before we get there, I just want to say, so Didactic was produced by Print Text, and it will be available at the symposium. So you can get it there. If folks are listening to the podcast, if they're out mowing their yard or walking their dog or driving in the car, just steer your vehicle, whatever it is, towards Columbus, Indiana, and you can pick one up today at the, or tomorrow at the symposium. And then just... I feel like I've done a, a bad job in, in framing some of the things we've talked about because I don't think I've framed really the heart of Exhibit Columbus well enough and why we wanted to create the didactic and, and got Enrique involved in this is that the center of Exhibit Columbus is the J. Irwin and Xenia S. Miller Prize competition. And so this is a competition where we've identified five primary iconic sites in Columbus. And then we've invited 10 artists, architects, and designers to compete one-on-one -on -one for a cash prize to build an installation that will be on view next August. And at the same time, we're going to have five universities that are going to have installations. We're going to have five leading design galleries, which we're going to announce at the exhibition and a number of projects by school kids in Columbus. And so we've created a frame at the symposium to allow us to see what the exhibition is going to be next year while at the same time building a basis of knowledge about the past. And so having didactic there was a way for us to, in a sense, just like print all of the things we've been researching to create these project briefs for the exhibition. And that's that's the core of it. Sorry, I just wanted to take a time out and explain that bit of it. I hope you don't mind. No, we. I, I wanted to get to it eventually anyway, because you, you're bringing some pretty amazing firms, young practitioners to the region to, to compete. And that's, I think, also interesting that it's a competition. It's not like you're just inviting people and saying, come make something. You're inviting people and saying, see if you can compete and win this slot. So I know Amelia has another question, but I, I could you do you want to just run down the list of names of people that are coming for the Miller Prize? I'd love to. So the, the 10 designers that have been chosen for the 2016 and 17 Miller Prize competition are Aranda Lash, Baumgartner and Urio, Balnoga Studio, Rachel Hayes Studio, Howler Yoon, IKD, Johnston Mark Lee, in partnership with Jonathan Olivares, Euler Wu Collaborative, Plan B Architecture and Urbanism, and Studio Indigenous. Those are firms that are in Boston, New York, Milwaukee, 
Tucson, Los Angeles, I noticed Tuesday, Tucson. Tuesday, LA. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's this great mix of folks that are in some cases artists, in another case, you know, designers. Even Rachel Hayes is from Tulsa, Oklahoma, or lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She's, you know, purely an artist. And so the idea is that we wanted to reach back to this legacy of Columbus of mixing architecture, landscape architecture, furniture design, art, and see what happens. And so all of those folks will be at the symposium involved in the conversations. Josh had a real, I feel like he had a really clear concept of the kinds of designers that were there. Could you describe sort of their practices, Josh? We're looking at young in the tradition of Columbus, where they were hiring people who had work, but were up and coming. And they used Columbus as a platform to kind of jump up. If you, you think of Kevin Roach or Venturi, there's just the list is endless. Um, those were the kind of people we were looking for. We were also looking for artists and architects, designers that have maybe we'd call it a studio based practice, not exactly corporate, not exactly just in your garage, but sort of like a studio-based practice like you might find in the art world. People who are interested not just in, you know, obviously the bottom line, which is important, but other larger disciplinary discussions. So we tried to get a broad range of what's going on in the world today. And we also were interested in people who could react in dialogue with these sites that Richard mentioned. So the, the goal, we're, we're hoping that these temporary installations, the Miller Prize installations, will have kind of a transformative understanding of a site. Like after Exhibit Columbus, you would never look at, you know, Cummins headquarters again. You would always reference it to, oh, do you remember when so-and-so built something there? It's really interesting. And this idea of Exhibit Columbus is not a one-time thing. We're hoping this is a yearly thing for the next, you know, as many years as we can get the community to kind of back it. So hopefully that that answered the question. In the list of of uh, firms that were invited to compete. You guys mentioned Justin Markley, and that just provoked uh, me to remember something that Donna had referenced before, before we had you guys on the podcast. We were, but she brought up the relationship of something like Exhibit Columbus to other architecture, biennials, biennales, triennials, whatever, et cetera, et cetera, that are going on and how they all kind of take a different stance on not only representing the profession and the practice of architecture, but also how they kind of address an audience, like what their basic language is. I know that we've spoken so much about how the community in Columbus is already so sympathetic to the fact that these great designs are all over the city and they identify it with it. But I'm also wondering, like, does that mean that you can just talk to, you can just kind of stage everything and exhibit Columbus in the same way you would to a professional architect? Or kind of, can you walk us through, like, who would be an average attendee to the Exhibit Columbus? Anything, either the symposia or the, the, the talks or any part of it and how you're kind of treating them? Yeah, so we've we've thought a lot about that. At a certain point, you know, again, we have a super smart people working on the curatorial team. You're just talking to myself and Josh and, and there's a number of others and, and we've, you know, engaged some other folks. We identified actually at one point 11 different sort of audience profiles of folks that we thought might come with the exhibition. And then we use that as a framework to create the symposium. And I would break those 11 groups down to, in a sense, two that we've been focused on. And one, it's your listeners, folks that are sophisticated, smart folks that have professional practices in architecture and know these names, you know, on the tip of their tongue. And the other is, you know, sort of the most community of community in Columbus. And our thought was that if we can get to those two audiences, which don't often overlap, if we can get to them, we'll get that huge middle space between them. Does that help to think about the audience like that sort of we're going for two different we're we're going for the outliers hoping we get the middle along the way yeah that absolutely makes sense i brought up johnson markley in particular just because they were recently named the art directors of the upcoming chicago biennial 
happening next year. And one of the things that keeps that's always lobbied at these events as kind of a both a criticism, but also like something that keeps them happening and keeps them special to the community is that they they can tend to be a little bit too tending towards the architect's sensibility and at least how things are communicated and, and that they lack that kind of broad, accessible language to bring in the basic community. And so it's kind of this like back and forth between how much do you cater to the people, the hardcore people who are super into this and how much do you um, try to just get the largest swath possible. So I, I appreciate you sharing the strategy. I think I, I'm, I'm interested to see how it works out. Well, it might be a question we could throw to Richard, but what I think one of the other kind of really interesting premises of Exhibit Columbus is that we've actually engaged the local school district from K to 12 into Exhibit Columbus by one, the university installations will be built on school grounds. We have third graders who are developing uh, architectural applications uh, and apps comic books. Um, (laughs) Just the phrase third graders are developing is a a great great phrase. You know, the the city of Columbus, the citizenry there is actually pretty well educated on architecture. And so trying to kind of tap into, you know, we all, a lot of us are parents that we'll do anything. We'll go see anything if our kid's involved in it. You know, so we're we're tapping into that, but we're also trying to expand a sort of design thinking into the curriculum of the, uh, school district there. And uh, I'm sure Richard can explain it a lot better than me. So I'm going to throw it over to him. Well, actually, I think you did a really very good job of it. I mean, I think we've we've worked really hard for the past year to learn from what's actually happening in the school district. And so that'll be a part of actually the symposium on Saturday, and Saturday afternoon. We're going to highlight some things that have been happening. You know, there's uh, Ethan Crow with the School Foundation created a whole new tour for third graders, specially designed for third graders. Kelly Wilson from the IU Center of Art and Design worked with a graphic designer in town to make a comic book about art and architecture in the community. Um, it's this battle against the minions of mediocrity, which is really <laughs> fun. So you'll, you'll get to, in, if you come to the symposium, you'll get a limited edition comic book about this. And so we've, we've been thinking about this for a long time. It's, but it's, you know, it's, um, it's tough to get into curriculum, but at the same time, you know, Josh represents universities in particular graduate schools, but we're also, you know, working a lot with the community college in Columbus, Ivy Tech in Columbus has a, has a strong visual arts program. And so, you know, basically what we know in order for this project to work, it has to be hot on our block first. It has to be great in Columbus you know, to me, success is a bunch of emails and phone calls next week that are asking me what we're doing next. And then after the exhibition saying, when are we doing that again? And so this is, you know, this is a big, expensive project in a small town. It's an audacious effort. We didn't go small. We went big. And in order for this to work, we know that it has to work on a community level, yet we need the respect of every single one of your listeners and all of you here talking today. Okay, so speaking of going big, <laughs> yeah, I want to ask if you guys are hoping to get the Hollywood bump off of the movie that's supposedly coming out soon called Columbus and uh, starring Parker Posey. And I can't remember the name of the um, actor who's on Star Trek. It's <laughs> also starring in it. And apparently it's a movie that's being filmed. And it's a it's a drama, but it also says the director says the architecture of Columbus is a character in the movie. Did you guys have any Hollywood sightings or can you talk? Do, do you know much about this movie? Can you tell us uh, anything about it? Josh, do you want me to field this one? Please. <laughs> OK, <laughs> so, yeah, it's true. So it actually wrapped uh, at the end of this summer. You know, it was a, a low budget Hollywood movie filmed in Columbus, and it's filmed by the, the Korean born director who uses a stage name Kokonada. And so it's a screenplay. And I uh, sorry, I'm, I'm a little uh, I'm, I don't know this these facts off the top of my head, but it's a story about a young woman who comes back to Columbus uh, and her father is a famous architectural historian. 
and it's some kind of love interest. And, mm -hmm. and so it's, and it's, uh, John Cho is one of the actors. And this is John Cho, who was Sulu in Star Trek Beyond. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there's exactly. a number of other actors that have been around in, and I, Haley, oh, what's her name? I'm sorry. I'm so bad at this. But anyway, it was, it was fun to see these. Hollywood actors come to Columbus and post a bunch of pictures about their time on Instagram. And, you know, so it's uh, Parker Posey. That's who the other person was. Um, Haley Lou Richardson. And so if you go and look up their Instagram feeds, you can see pictures of I.M. Pei's library in John Cho's Instagram feed. They were smitten by the place. And I think Aww. this is the kind of thing that's going to really catapult on a national way as much as exhibit Columbus into the consciousness of folks and why design matters for towns. That would be the best hope that we all architects would have for whenever Hollywood takes on the architect trope or the, the notion of building. I, I, I mean, I think that is the most important thing we all would want from it is just that a movie could show people the surroundings around you matter, the built environment around you matters. And yeah, if a movie with the uh, Parker Posey happens to be someone who I love. If she posts on Instagram, great architecture, all the better. I have no problem with that. I think she posted from Eero Saarinen's Miller House and Garden. Wonderful. The Miller House being, of course, the sort of crown jewel. Well, maybe not. Maybe Saarinen's church is the... There's too many crown jewels in Columbus to count. There really are. Hey, Richard, have you listened to our podcast at all? I've listened to it a little bit, but I would say I I'm not intimately familiar with it. Oh, okay. So the, the hardest question is usually left at the end. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually for both of you, but I figured I'd pick on you because, you know. Okay. I don't, Let's go. I, don't, I haven't met you yet. Yeah. <laughs> what are you listening to and what are you reading right now? Um, so uh, my wife always makes fun of me because she's very smart and reads a lot of books. And I don't read a lot of books. I am a dilettante. Um, I read a lot of web pages. <laughs> and um, I, I'm just going to... Hey, I'm those just are gonna, books. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to... Also, I've actually... This is the most Fox News I've ever read in my life the past six months. I'm fascinated by the way that media on different sides have been covering the election. So I've been... So the, the truth is I've been reading a lot of Fox News. What I'm listening to is on a little bit of repeat a couple different things. I'm, I'm kind of a lame. I need some new. So if you have suggestions, let me have them. But I listen to a lot of Bob Dylan and I've been listening to a lot of Sunluck, S-O-N-L-U-X. And so, you know, I, I like him a lot. It's Ryan Lott with uh, two other musicians that just were on tour this summer and I had a chance to see him a couple times. So I'm a big Sunlux fan. Josh, how about you? Well, I, uh, I was prepared for this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we knew you would because you're yeah. such a fan. We knew you would. <laughs> I am a fan, actually. But I just finished uh, a book called The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World by Andrea Wolf. I don't know how I never knew who Alexander von Humboldt was, but he was this amazing scientist that kind of invented the idea of nature as a sort of a series of things that go together as opposed to just studying trees. I mean, he, he, his influence was just kind of off the charts. You know, he influenced everyone from John Muir to, you know, he, he helped the independence of South America. He scolded Thomas Jefferson on slavery. He invented the, the kind of idea of weather patterns. Uh, I mean, he's just an amazing, um, 
kind of 18th century person that we just don't know of and is not taught in American schools. So uh, anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It's something like I, I'm going to have my 11-year-old daughter read, and I would also recommend it to you guys. I mean, it's just an amazing book. And then my music tastes, so bear with me. Recently, I'm listening to Off With Their Heads, a great Minneapolis band. And then also uh, today I was listening to Stiff Little Fingers. Excellent. <laughs> so that then really leads to a question that I was sort of joking about, but how would you describe Exhibit Columbus as being punk rock? What's the most punk rock aspect of what this Exhibit Columbus is about? Can I take that one, Richard? Yeah, you got to take that one. <laughs> okay. You got to I mean, take that one, Josh. I think it's, I'm I'm too old to be ever called punk rock again, but part of it is, I think the, the kind of the do-it-yourself attitude that Richard stated earlier, that it's coming up from the community. I think we're trying to do it with integrity. You know, that that it's always been about Columbus and celebrating Columbus. We're trying to do something different and we're trying to do something with attitude. So that would be the stretch of, it's not the kind of punk rock where you, you know, to be offensive, it was kind of more of the, let's call it like the Fugazi side of punk rock. <laughs> you know, the, the more the do it yourself, if you want it done right kind of attitude. Yeah. So that's it. That's perfect, I think. And uh, again, I, I'm just, I feel like we could talk about Columbus in particular and specifics of architecture for hours and hours, but th there's just so much to talk about there. And I'm so excited you guys were able to be on for the show tonight. Yeah, guys, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much to uh, Richard and Josh. You guys, uh, good luck with the event. We're hoping it's a huge success and will continue for many years after that. And thanks to everybody out there listening this week. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcNext Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Talk to you next week.